You're listening to teaching from Midtown Fellowship, a Jesus-centered family on mission in Columbia, South Carolina. If you're interested in finding out more about us, our family of churches, or how to partner with us, go to midtowncolumbia.com. chance to meet you. I'm Ant. I get the privilege of serving as pastor here at Midtown 2 Notch. If you're a guest, very glad that you're here worshiping with us, joining us as we're working our way through 1 Corinthians. We only have a few weeks left. We got this thing started in in August. We're finishing up chapter 14 uh, today. Uh, If you were here with us last week, you know that I said that we're kind of looking at last Sunday and this Sunday almost as two parts of the same sermon. There's so much that, that needs to be shared, taught on, so much instruction that Paul gives us in this chapter that this, this, this was kind of like a part two from last week. So I want you to do me a favor. If you're here now and you weren't here last week, please make sure you check out the podcast. You can go to midtowntoonotch.com. Make sure you listen to the sermon from last week because this one might not completely make sense. There might be some things that's hard to tie together in the sermon today if you weren't here last week. To set everybody at ease a little bit, If you were here last week, I want to let you know that between last week and this week, I learned how to use an iPad. So I had a little trouble getting things going in the beginning. I think I got my millennial card back sometime between Sunday of last week and today. So you can be at ease with that. Last week, we talked about a topic that's very much disagreed on by many believers, many followers of Jesus across denominational lines and different churches, even probably some disagreement within our own church. So this is an an important thing that we make sure we just look to the Word of God and wherever we land on the different, on this topic that we'll get into in a little bit, let's make sure that we're biblically rooted, right? That is based primarily on what we see in the Bible, what we know from the Bible, not from what our preferences are, what makes us most comfortable, what we like to believe, what we were always taught as we were growing up, but we center ourselves on the Word of God. In Paul's letter here, Specifically in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, he gives instruction on the gifts of the Spirit, specifically the gifts of the Spirit involving God supernaturally giving words to his people for the edification of the body of Christ, specifically the gifts of prophecy and tongues. I won't be able to go into everything I said last week. I do want to do a quick recap of some of the things, some of the, the things, the terms we defined and that type of thing. One thing we did was we defined prophecy as when someone gives a message from God to a person or a group of people. When someone gives a message from God to a person or a group of people. We define the gift of tongues as when the Holy Spirit gives someone the ability to speak in a language that they do not understand. When the Holy Spirit gives someone the ability to speak in a language that they do not understand. Biblically speaking, there are times that, that Paul brings up that this can be when someone, when someone is praying, maybe a, 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 language that, or a language that God gives them, that they are talking to God. Sometimes, biblically speaking, it's more of a, a prophetic message to the body or maybe to some members of the body of Christ. And in those times, obviously, there would be a need for someone to interpret the language that, are, the language that is being spoken. Excuse me. Also define two different camps that people kind of land in on this issue specifically of prophecy and tongues. Some people will refer to themselves as cessationists. A cessationist is someone who believes 
that the spiritual gifts of prophecy and tongues do not exist today. I talked about that, why many cessationists believe that last week. I don't have time to get into all those details today. The other camp is a continuationist. I think I said continuous last week. I should have said continuationist. It's someone that believes that all the spiritual gifts exist today. Someone that believes that all the spiritual gifts exist today. Some in those camps are called charismatics. I revealed last week, I like to think of myself as a, a conscious charismatic. Conscious charismatic. A charismatic with a seatbelt, if you would. I'm down to be in the car. I ain't got no problem with that, but we've got to use proper caution. All right, when you're talking about prophecy and speaking in tongues, one of the things that I, one of the conclusions that I arrived at last week as I was talking to different members about the sermon from last week is that many of us have had such negative experiences with prophecy and speaking in tongues and people saying that they're prophesying and speaking in tongues that there's a, a bit of a trepidation when the, when the subject comes up. There are some of us in the room that, that grew up in homes, and we'll get, we'll get, we'll get into this uh, more specifically when Paul talks about, or grew up in churches, I should say, where spiritual gifts were used in a way that were outside of the instruction that Paul gives us on how we're to use these spiritual gifts. The Corinthians were in the same boat, using the gifts incorrectly in ways that are not proper, in ways that are not in, in order, not done decently. It's very, it's very interesting the way that the Corinthians were set up. I want to take you to, to 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 1. I didn't go here last week, but just to remind us of some of what we already went through in this series, Paul says, but I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. That word that he uses when he's talking about spiritual people is the same word that I talked about last week, the, the, the pneumatikos so to speak. So in, in chapter 14, he says, I want you to be aware of the pneumaticos, of the things that the Holy Spirit does, so to speak. But in chapter 3, he said to them that I can't even refer to you as people who are being marked by the work of the Holy Spirit. Right? Get, get the irony here. So there, out of any other church in the New Testament, we, we are, as far as what we are familiar with, they exercise these gifts more than anyone else. Paul wrote a bunch of letters to different churches. This is the only time he actually brings up speaking in tongues is to the church at Corinth, right? So they're doing all the spiritual things or the things that seem the most spiritual. But in chapter 3, Paul says, I can't even refer to you as if your lives are marked by the activity of the Holy Spirit because of how immature you are. One of the points that was made last week is don't, don't confuse spiritual activity with spiritual maturity. Right, that when we're examining spiritual maturity, we look at the fruit of the Spirit, not the gifts of the Spirit. The Corinthian church had all the gifts of the Spirit potentially operating more than the other churches in the New Testament. But Paul says, I can't even talk to y'all like y'all are spiritual people because there was so much division. There was such a lack of love in the church. High on gifting, low on maturity. High on the gifts of the Spirit, low on the fruit of the Spirit. It seems that they were confusing the more, I can't think of a better way to say this than the, 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 the flashy gifts. Y'all know what I'm talking about. The ones that seem more spiritual. That they were more focused actually on those gifts and they were focused on loving people. It seems like they loved the gifts more than they loved people, more than they loved the church, more than they loved edifying the body of Christ. If you've been with us a bit, you know that Paul wrote this letter as a response to some questions that the Corinthian church had and also to correct them on a lot of things that they were 
doing wrong. There's multiple things he corrects them on in this letter. Obviously, in chapter 14, he's correcting them on the way they view, primarily speaking in tongues. So today, I brought this up, I think when we first got to chapter 11, is the first time I brought this up. So when Paul is correcting them, right, he generally uh, kind of speaks in two different lanes. One lane is principles, right? He gives them specific principles that they are to, that they are to embrace, that they are to apply, and he also gives them specific practices, ways of applying those principles that he gives them. So as we're going to work our way starting at verse 6 all the way through the rest of the chapter, one thing we need to be paying close attention to is when he's giving them a principle. This is, a principle is transferable across culture to all Christians everywhere, right? This is how we follow God, but the practices can be different per the church and the context that is being spoken into. Principles and practice. We need to always stick to the principles, the practices at times will be different depending on the context. Verse 6, chapter 14. Now, brothers, if I come to you speaking in tongues, how will I benefit you unless I bring you some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or teaching? If even lifeless instruments such as the flute or harp do not give distinct notes, how will anyone know what is played? And if the bugle gives an indistinct sound, who will get ready for battle? So with yourselves, if with your tongue you utter speech that is not intelligible, how will anyone know what is said? For you will be speaking into the air. At that time, when the troops were going to go into battle, there was a specific way that the bugle was played. It was distinct. If you were a soldier, you knew what it was. It, it meant it's time. We move it. We're going into battle right now. Paul is using this analogy to teach them about the spiritual gift of speaking in tongues. And he's saying, if you are coming around the church in a church service like this one, and you are speaking in tongues in a way and no one can understand, he's saying, how are the troops going to get ready for battle? How are we equipping the saints to go into the battle that God is calling us into and the mission that he has given us? He's like, it's a bugle playing something that no one understands. It doesn't actually accomplish its purpose because no one understands what is going on. Verse 10, we'll keep reading. There are doubtless many different languages in the world, and none is without meaning. But if I do not know the meaning of the language, I will be a foreigner to the speaker, and the speaker a foreigner to me. So with yourselves, since you are eager for manifestations of the Spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. Strive to excel in the building of the church. They were focused more on the gifts than the the building of the church. So Paul gives them that principle right there. As you're thinking about spiritual gifts, all the spiritual gifts and how they are to use, how they aren't going to be used, as you're thinking through the practical, start with, are we striving to build up the church? Is that the goal? Is that actually what we're after? They were using their gifts in unloving ways. I talked about that, talked about that last week to gain some type of status or position or esteem within the church. Our goal should always be to excel in building up the church. I'm going to ask you a question real quick. For your gifts, when you use your gifts, do you need a thank you? Do you need an affirmation? Do you need an attaboy, a good job, or I'm so blessed when you do this specific thing in order for you to continue on in using your gifts? Or is striving for the building up of the church enough? Or is that enough? Or just understanding that the Holy Spirit is at work through you to build up the church, is that enough? Or do you need... A thank you. Do you need recognition? Is building up the church enough for you? Paul's principle here is that we are to be eager for the Holy Spirit to manifest himself through us, through the gifts he has given us for the building up of the church. 
As we keep reading, we'll see Paul give them some counsel on the outworking of that very same principle. Verse 13. Therefore, one who speaks in a tongue should pray that he may interpret. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. What am I to do? I will pray with my spirit, but I will pray with my mind also. I will sing praise with my spirit, but I will sing praise with my mind also. So we hear him talking about praying and praising God in the the tongue, the gift of tongues that God has given in verse 16. Otherwise, if you give thanks with your spirit, how can anyone in the position of an outsider say amen to your thanksgiving when he does not know what you are saying? If you need a reason to say amen in church, Paul just gave you one. That's a side note, probably not what he's primarily saying. But verse 17, for you may be giving thanks well enough, but the other person is not being built up. I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. Nevertheless, in church, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. Brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil. But in your thinking, be mature. He arrives at the conclusion that he would rather say five words that he can understand and, be understood, and can be understood by the church than he would prefer to speak a 10,000 words in tongues that no one else can understand when he's with the saints in worship. And in verse 20, he told them not to be children in their thinking. He's saying, don't, don't think like a child in this. Right, so they're using the spiritual gifts. They're speaking in tongues. People can't understand what's going on. Apparently, there's there are multiple people speaking in tongues at the same time. Right, Paul brings to mind for them. What, what if someone, a, a visitor, comes in, a guest comes in? How are they going to be able to say amen if they can't understand what you're saying? He's like, don't don't think like a child. His implication is, only a child would think that that's a proper way to do it. He's saying that's immature. He's saying that's childish. That you would actually assume that the best way for these gifts to be exercised is for everyone to speak in tongues at one time. No one explaining to anybody what is going on. He's saying you're being immature. He tells them, think in a mature way. In verse 20, he says, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil. If you want to be an infant in anything, be an infant in doing wrong. But when you're thinking about this and the edification of the church, think in a mature way. Jump down to verse 23. More principle for us. If therefore the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues and outsiders or unbelievers or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you are out of your minds? Paul says. He says not only is it unloving, but they're going to think that you're crazy. Paul, as he's thinking through the way the church is to be constructed and the way a worship service is to be conducted, he has the unbeliever and the visitor in mind. He has their thoughts and their experience in mind. He's saying, won't they think you're crazy if you all are doing this? Be mature. Don't be childish in your thinking about this. Verse 24, but if all prophesy and an unbeliever or outsider enters, he is convicted by all. He is called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed. And so falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. He's saying, but if God gives a specific word of prophecy, then God can use that to bring humility, to humble us and lead us, or even a visitor or unbeliever, into repentance. Verse 26. Here's practical. Here's practice coming up. Verse 26. What then, brothers, when you come together, each one has a hymn, 
a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up, rooting them again in the principle. Verse 27, if any speak in a tongue, let there only be two or at most three, and each in turn, and let someone interpret. There's a practice. If someone is speaking in tongues, he's saying, make sure, first of all, two or three of y'all, no more than that. We're doing no more than that, he says, first of all. And he says, each one in turn, nobody's talking over anybody else. And then he says, and if someone else, and if you do that, there better be somebody there who can interpret it for everyone who's there. If you do that, there better be somebody who can interpret it, what is said. Verse 28, but if there is no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in church and speak to himself and to God. If no one can interpret, close your mouth. Verse 28, but there is no one to inter- but if there is no one to interpret, sorry, let each of them keep silent in church and speak to himself and to God. Verse 29, let two or three prophets speak and let the others weigh what is said. If a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent. For you can all prophesy one by one so that all may learn and all be encouraged. And the spirits of prophets are subject to prophets. For God is not of confusion. Sorry, for God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. He said, if you're going to have someone prophesy, let them do it, but weigh what is said. The Greek word there that's translated way is a word that means they can, they can be translated to judge or discern. So he's saying anytime someone is coming up and speaking on behalf of God, make sure that it is weighed, make sure that it is judged, make sure you're, you're discerning whether or not this is something that actually lines up with the word of God. He says there shouldn't be multiple people trying to do this at the same time. God isn't a God of confusion. That's another principle. Jump down to verse 38. He says if anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. He says, so if there's anybody who's out of line and out of order with this, and they don't recognize that what I'm saying right here is actually true, then don't recognize them. That's what he's saying. If they don't recognize the truth of this, do not recognize them or what they have to say. Now, uh, if you've been keeping count, you know Paul spends more time hammering on the principles than he does the practicals. Then he does the practice. He, he, he's rooting them. Everything, I believe, is because the principles are actually, in general, more important. I think a lot of these practicals are transferable to us as a church. But we see him rooting everything in the principles. And sandwiched in there is this very hard to understand and hard to interpret passage that I'm going to read. We'll read it. You're going to feel shocked when you read it. And then I'm going to explain it and hopefully smooth it over a little bit. Verse 33. And I'll read through 35. As in all the churches... Of the saints, the women should keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission, as the law also says. If there is anything they desire to learn, this is a key part, verse 35. If there is anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. Two reasons this is difficult to interpret. First reason is we don't want to hear any of the words he just said. It's number one. Number two, <laughs> there's another reason that this is difficult to interpret. If you remember in chapter 11, He's giving practicals on what the women should do if they're going to prophesy in the church in chapter 11. Right. So few commentators, very few theologians say that Paul is given an outright statement or command that women cannot speak in the church. Because if so, he's contradicting himself and what he said in chapter 11 when he's talking to women about how they what they should do if they're actually going to prophesy within the church. That's one reason it's difficult. Another reason it's difficult is because we, as I've said before in this series, we're, we're picking up in the, in the middle of a conversation. Right, so there's already been this back and forth going on, so we don't know exactly what has already been said. We don't know what has already been uh, established and agreed on. We don't know exactly also what has been going on in the church 
at Corinth at the time. Many historians and theologians believe that at this time, and I think some fundamentalist churches still do this, uh, that women and men were sitting on different sides of the, the church gathering, the church service, or whatever that they were having, right? And the women at that time did not have very much access to education, right? And you got to remember that the context of what Paul puts this in is one where he's rebuking them for all the confusion and everyone talking over each other and no one being able to follow what's actually being able to go on, what actually is going on. So a lot of historians and theologians believe uh, that the women were maybe asking their husbands to explain what was actually going on, but they were they were yelling at them across the church in the middle of this confusing environment. And Paul is saying, as he says in verse 35, if there is anything they desire to learn, let the master husbands at home for the shameful, shameful for a woman to speak in church. So many would land on the idea that Paul is speaking specifically to the practice that is going on there and telling them, hey, you can't do that largely because of the context that Paul puts this in, right? So Paul could have put this in any other context in the book if he wanted to do that. He puts it in the context where he's talking to them about people talking over each other and how everything needs to be done decently and in order. Very few theologians and authors and commentaries say that Paul is saying that women cannot speak at all in the church again because then he would be contradicting himself in in chapter 11. My understanding is the best way for us to apply these verses is to stick to the principles that Paul has already said. Everything for the edification of the body. Don't do anything that's confusing to an outsider or anyone else. Make sure that what you're doing, when you're saying, when when people are giving words in the church, make sure it's being done for the edification of the body. Now, before we get into the practicals for Midtown 2, now, I know ever since we hit chapter 12 and the first time y'all saw the word tongues in that passage, y'all like, when we speaking in tongues in here, we getting there. Give me a second. First, I got to deal with some misconceptions. Misconceptions that I believe need to be addressed even before we get into some of the practicals to make sure we're on the same page. First misconception, when the Holy Spirit moves, I lose control. When the Holy Spirit is moving, I just can't control myself. You got to think about this, right? Like, what did Paul say to them already in the passage? Let's go back to it, verse 27. Let's go back to it and see what Paul says. He deals with this very directly. If any speak in a tongue, let there be only two or at most three, and each in turn, and let someone interpret. But if there's no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in the church and speak to himself and to God. Let two or three prophets speak and let the others weigh what is said. If a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent, for you can all prophesy one by one so that all may learn and all be encouraged. Many would say, many in the uh, charismatic camp would say, well, when the Spirit comes over me, like, I just, I just can't control it, right? And that's an excuse that's used not to follow what Paul is saying right here. But the very point that he says, two at most three, everybody else be quiet. If ain't nobody interpreting, be quiet and close your mouth. You can have some people prophesy, but it's got to be done in this order, proves, proves the point that then they are in control of what they are doing, right? Otherwise, they wouldn't be able to stick to such a rigid, which would have definitely come across as rigid to them, a very rigid order of things if they were not in control. Here's the thing. Here's the thing. You possess the spiritual gift. The spiritual gift does not possess you. You possess the spiritual gift. The spiritual gift does not possess you. The Holy Spirit would not function in such a way as to cause confusion. The Holy Spirit is going to function in such a way as it is to encourage and edify the body of Christ, not in a way that is going to bring in confusion. 
So here's a test. If, if in the way spiritual gifts are used in this church or any other, either other church, if, if there is confusion, people don't know what's going on, the church doing something wrong. We're just doing it wrong. That, that, that is a, a principle that needs to be applied across the spectrum as we're thinking about worship services in general. Is it edifying the church? Is it confusing? If it is confusing, then the church is doing something wrong. Some of you, the trepidation that you have, have felt when we got to chapter 12, chapter 13, chapter 14, talking about speaking in tongues is because you've seen it done in ways that are, that are, that are extremely confusing, right? extremely off-putting, maybe to those who do not understand what is going on. This is very important. This is very important. There's another misconception. I, I won't be on this too long because I brought this up a little bit last week. Second misconception, churches are wrong if speaking in tongues out loud isn't a regular part of their worship service. There are some people who legitimately believe this, had a conversation. This was probably a month after we moved into this building. Actually, uh, it, was, actually it wasn't even that long. I don't even think we had our first service yet. And there was a, a woman who was in an event at, on the other side of the building. I think it was like a, a Saturday or something. We we're talking about a church. We're inviting her around. And the first question she asked was like, you know, what denomination are you affiliated with? And the second question was, y'all speak in tongues? And I'm like, that's question number two? That's number two on the list? Do you all speak in tongues? And I knew we were about to do 1 Corinthians, and I let her know, hey, we'd love to have you in 1 Corinthians. We're actually going to deal with that. She was like, well, you, you, you need to make sure that you're having the Holy Spirit move in that way in your services. This is the first instruction that you give when you're talking about a church? Paul gives instruction on speaking in tongues. In three chapters in the New Testament, in all the chapters that he has written to the church, there are some who legitimately believe that. When she asked me that, when she asked me that, I said, yeah, I believe there are some that do and there are some that don't. I don't know if that changes anything for you or not. Here's, here's the thing. Here's part of what I'm saying. Let's keep this as an open-handed issue, right? There are some closed-handed issues that if we don't agree, we ain't on the same team. Right? Jesus died for our sins. Jesus is the Son of God, born of a virgin, a virgin, raised from the dead, coming back for his people. LeBron is better than Kobe. Like, there's some things that you just got to agree on, or we ain't on the same team. Or we just not on the same, thank you, or we just not on the same team if we don't agree on these things. or some things we just got to agree to if there's going to be unity and fellowship amongst the brothers and sisters. But where we land on spiritual gifts is not one of those things, especially continuationist or, or cessationist. It's not one of those things. We can disagree and still move forward together for the upbuilding of the kingdom of God, for the edifying of his church, for sharing the good news of Jesus with those that do not know him if we disagree with this. Honestly, I don't even feel like it's worth a lot of arguing, especially arguing when people get upset with each other. I don't even think it's worth it. If you disagree with, with, with where I land on it, that's fine. Let's continue moving forward for the sake of the kingdom of God, that we will see his kingdom come with power right here in our city, right here in the inner city, Two Notch Road. There's too much work to be done in the kingdom for us to be falling out over stuff like this. It's too much to be done. The, 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 the unity in Christ is, is too important. There's too much at stake for us to be falling out over this type of thing. It is an open-handed issue. If you disagree, that's okay. That's fine. All right, let's get to the question you've been asking about. Will we be speaking in tongues up in here in Sunday worship services or not, nah, right? The first, first of all, 
to some degree, I believe it already happens in a way that's for people speaking tongues to themselves and to God in following with the instruction that we have here in 1 Corinthians chapter 14. So first of all, I would say, from my perspective, I'd say it's already happening. And here's the way that I, I would say it. I was actually talking with our lead team about this. If someone were to come to me that's a member of our church and they would say, Aunt, I have the gift of speaking in tongues and I believe sometimes God gives me a prophetic word that I want to be shared with the church. First thing I would say is, I don't know if anyone who has the gift of interpreting in our church. And if that's the case, it's not going to happen. That's the first thing I would say. Second thing I would say is, if someone did come to me and say that they had the gift of interpretation of tongues, uh, first thing I, w- I would discern, think through, are they a member of our church? Are they growing in the grace of, of God? Are they, are they repenting from sin and faithfully walking with the Lord? Is it someone that we trust? And if so, I would say if there was, and there was a time in a worship service where someone, someone who has the gift of tongues said, I, want, I feel like I have a word from the Lord, I would ask them during a song to the person who interprets and the person who speaks in tongues to potentially go to the back of the room or somewhere else and speak and share just because I don't think people in general would understand. A lot of people who come in wouldn't understand what is going on if it was done more, if the whole thing was done up front. And then I'll have the person who says they have the gift of interpretation come to me and share with me what the interpretation of it is. And then I would say yay or nay, depending on what they said and, and all the other factors that are, that are listed, probably would happen after, at the end of one of our worship sets uh, and have someone share depending on what it is. But ultimately, it would come to me. If I'm not here, then don't do it. And <laughs> that said, if the person came up and said something that was contrary to the Word of God, I would be forced to come up and interrupt them, stop them, explain to everyone why that was wrong, and then they'd never be able to do it again. So I love you, but I, I would have to do that. So that's the way that I, that I would have to do it. And that, that might flex and that might change. Honestly, it's not 100% uh, set in stone. Uh, there, there are other avenues that that might be uh, done in as far as people sharing what, what God may have laid on our hearts. Uh, I believe at a, uh, maybe a member meeting level or, or other avenues that that might be able to, uh, to be done. I'll be honest with you, we're still uh, working through what that might look like. We might do it that way one day and be like, ah, we didn't like how that went and switch it up and do it and do it in a different way. But that's where we're currently standing um, on that. I don't expect it to be anything that happens uh, every, every week or anything, anything like that. That said, question number two, will there be prophecy in our Sunday worship service? I would probably treat it uh, in a similar way. If there's someone who's a member in good standing with the church, walking with Jesus, doing all those types of things, uh, and they say that they have the gift of prophecy, I'll probably treat it the same way, I think. Uh, but, but hear me on this. The, the question of um, will we allow prophecy in our church? I want you to maybe rethink uh, the gift of prophecy a little bit. If we're saying it's when God gives someone a message to give to the people, prayerfully, we have prophecy every week in the sermon. Prayerfully, there is actually some, some amount of the gift of prophecy being used every week during the sermon. There's a reason that, that the center focal point of every service that we have is the proclaimed word of God. There's a reason. That that's the case. Sing a few songs before, a few songs after. Say it, read a scripture or two before, sing afterwards, and also do some type of announcements or vision casting for our church afterwards. But right in the middle, there will be someone, at this point, primarily me, standing up, proclaiming the word of God. Proclaiming 
God's word. Don't discount the preaching of God's word as a prophetic manifestation of the Holy Spirit. I know for me personally, there are many times where I just feel pressed by the Lord that this specific thing needs to be said to this specific people at this specific time. A lot of times it happens when I'm doing sermon prep and I'm putting everything together. Sometimes it happens while I'm up here. I don't even have it. I just go off script a little bit and just pray it was the Holy Spirit. <laughs> that was doing the lead. I ain't going to lie to you. I ain't going to lie to you. Don't discount the preaching of God's word as God giving a message to his people. I can't tell you the amount of times that people have come up to me and said, that whole sermon was everything that I've been praying about this week or this month or whatever it is. I can't tell you how many times it happens. I don't know anything about the person's situation. I believe it's something that the Holy Spirit does and uses. I believe he does it in the time when the sermon is being prepped and potentially spontaneously as well. Go back to uh, verse 1. Those are more corporate practicals, how we might try to work through that as a, as a church. I want to go into individual practicals as well, things that we can do individually. Reverse, I'll look at verse 1 in chapter 14. Pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. Pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. That's verse 1. So that's how he starts it. Earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially prophecy. Look at how he ends it, verse 39, the next to the last verse in the chapter. So my brothers earnestly desire to prophesy. I think one definite practical that we can have, if we want to be faithfully walking in this command from Paul to desire the manifestation of the Spirit, specifically prophecy, is pray that God will speak to us through us. Pray that God will speak to us us. Is there anything more fitting when the people of God collectively desire something from God? Is there anything more fitting than praying that God would do it? Praying that God would speak through us, to us. I feel the need to ask you today, what's your prayer life like before you come to one of our worship services? What, 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 what is your prayer life like? I know generally whoever reads the scripture prays over the sermon that God will speak to us through the message that is given. I understand that. But I want to ask, what's your prayer life like before a worship service, before your life group meetings, before you're hanging out with others in the church, before a one-on-one meeting that you might have with another member in a church, before we go on our prayer walks every week? What's your prayer life like? Do we eagerly desire for God to speak to us and plead with God to speak to us through us? I'm telling you, no matter who you're meeting with, no matter when you're meeting with them, whether they just joined the church yesterday or whether they are a pastor in the church, they have some sin in their life that they don't want to let go of. They have some amount of discouragement that the enemy is trying to sow into their heart and into their spirit. They might be struggling through a trial in some type of way that you're not aware of. They might be feeling extremely discouraged at that very time. They might feel like God and everyone has forgotten about them. They might currently be on the fence about choosing something that the enemy will have for them to do instead of what God is calling them to do. What's your prayer life like? Do we eagerly desire that God would manifest himself through giving us words to share with each other enough? to? T- I'm talking 15 seconds. You just got off work. You're tired. You don't feel like going to a life group meeting, and you're praying, God, would you speak to us this evening? Would you speak to us? God, we need encouragement, we need hope, we need peace, we need joy, we need strength, we need perseverance. And when you speak to us, you can give us that. Will you speak to us at this life group meeting that I'm going to that I honestly don't even feel like going to right now? What's your prayer life like throughout the week? Would you commit to praying 
for the, for the sermon development process, knowing that God's people are going to be sitting together for about 35, 40 minutes under the proclaimed word of God. Would you pray for that during the week? Would you pray for that on a Sunday morning before you get here? God, if it's Aunt or whoever it is, would you speak powerfully to us? God, we need you. God, we, we, we are in trouble if we don't hear from you. God, we are lacking if we don't hear from you, if you don't speak to us. God, we need your hope. We need your love. Michael Bailey, he's a pastor at our Lexington Church. He tells this beautiful, beautiful story uh, about his dad. So my, Bailey grew up playing, playing baseball primarily, and he, he said he could always notice his father's voice at the game. He said even when it was loud and there was a lot of people cheering, he could always notice what his dad was saying. boy, keep your eye on the ball. Good job, Michael. Oh, it's all right, shake it off, shake it off, shake it off. You'll get him next time, you'll get him next time. He said he could always, he could always pick his dad's voice out of the crowd. He said it was easy to pick it out because it was the same voice he heard every day. He said it was the same voice that told him, I love you. Same voice he said that punished him when he was out of line. Same voice that said, all right, it's time to go to school. Same voice that asked him, how, how was your day going? It was the same voice that had been taking care of him and guiding him all throughout his life. So he said when all the noise was there, he could always pick out his dad's voice and what his dad was saying to him. He said it was the same voice that joked with him. Same voice, voice that showed him how to fish and showed him how to swing the bat in the first place. He said he could pick it out of a crowd. He said if his dad was, when he was sharing, he said if my dad was here right now, I could tell you what he would say. Because I know his voice and because I know him. You have anyone in your, in your life like that? Anyone you know so well that in certain situations you'd be like, oh, I know exactly what this person would do. Someone you know so well that when they speak, you're just like, oh, I know who that is. I didn't know they were in the room. Do you know the word? I'm talking about the written word. Do you know the word of God? I'm talking about the living word of God. Jesus that, that, that walked this earth. Do you know the word? First Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 19 through 21. Paul writes, do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast to what is good. That word hold fast means to keep secure. It means to hold on to. It means to keep firm possession of something. So it says when you're discerning, if someone says, hey, this is a message from the Lord, he's, he's saying hold fast to everything that's good that comes from it. And I'm saying even if you're a cessationist and there's a time when someone says, hey, I, I believe God told me to tell you this, whether you believe prophecy exists or not, if they say something that is good, you test it and you hold fast to what is good. And I'll be honest, one of the reasons that I wanted to wait at least a few years after our church got started, before even talking about speaking in tongues and talking about prophecy from Satan, because I wanted to make sure through the proclaimed word of God that we knew the word. That we knew the word. You can't engage with prophecy if you don't know the word of God. You can't judge and test whether or not it is actually good if you do not know the word of God. It's like trying to grade an exam without the answer key. It's like trying to evaluate someone's knowledge when you are not familiar with the content yourself. You can't engage with prophecy if you do not know the word. Do you know the word? The living word who came, both, both, both righteous and just and gracious to forgive us of all of our sin. 
both, both, both kind and compassionate enough to, to touch the leper whom everyone would, would consider to be unclean, but yet, but yet strong and fierce enough to drive out all the oppressive moneymakers out of the temple that were harming God's people. Do you know the word? The word, the one who was loving enough to take our sins on his back and die on the cross and the one powerful enough to be raised again on the third day. Do you know the word of God? Do you know him? I truly believe if we know the word of God and we love him and also we hate sin, we will eagerly desire that he speak to us. If we hate the thing that he hates, which is sin, and we know him and we love him, we will desire his words. God, any way that you want to speak to us, speak to us. Give us your words, God. If you love the word, if you know the word, you will desire for him to speak. You will desire for him to instruct us, to guide us. The only one who came and is able to save us from our sin by making God known to us. God calls him, the Bible calls him the word of God. His body was broken. His blood was shed that we might know him. That we might know God. I want to give a final just encouragement because I know that quite a few of us, as I said earlier, grew up, have seen spiritual gifts used in an improper way, and maybe we grew up in that church, maybe we've just seen it from a distance, so we got this trepidation in dealing with it. I want to I ask all of us, but okay, I understand your hang-ups, I understand your pushback, but do you desire for God to speak to us? I'm not asking you about your theological categories and what camp that you're in. I'm asking you, do you desire for God to speak to us, through us? Let me pray for us. Father, we're grateful for you today. We're thankful that your word was created as you spoke to us. Your world was created as you spoke to us. Creation came into existence as you spoke, God, and we know that your word does not return to you void, that it does what you sent it to accomplish, God. So we ask that over and over again, every day of our lives, in the life of our church, that you would speak to us, that you would give us your words. Father, encourage us in the times that we need it most. Father, in times that that we are lonely, will you send us a word that just reminds us that you are with us and that we are loved, God? God, in times that we're tempted to believe that nobody loves us and no one cares about us, will you send someone with a word of encouragement to us that just reminds us that you love us and that you care about us and yet you have other people that you have sent to us to care about us? Father, in times where we're tempted to believe as the enemy would have us to believe that sin is better than you, would you send a word to us from anyone, Lord, to to remind us that we shouldn't run after that, but you are good. You are what we need. You are what our hearts desire, God. Will you send us that word in the time that we need it, God? Will you speak through us and speak to us? It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen.